Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for such a beautiful day. And thank you, Lord, for the family that you've given us in each other. And Lord, our heart's desire is that you build your church here. Our heart's desire is that you build your proper church, the church that you want, Jesus. Not what we want, and Lord, not what the Christian establishment wants. But Jesus, we want what you want, and we want you to do it here. And Lord, we thank you because your word promises that you're going to do it. And Lord, you've spoken us to us prophetically on lots of occasions that you're going to do it. And Lord, we're so thrilled about that. And we pray now that as we turn to your word, that you'll just enable us to be built up even more as a church. Each one of us individually and as your family here in Chickle. So Father, we ask you to anoint your word. Lord, I pray that you'll anoint everyone who's hearing your word. And I pray that it'll go deep into our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that it will change us. Lord, the minute we stop changing, we're dead. And Lord, that's not what we want. We want to be alive in you. So Lord, bless us now in the teaching, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right, for, for any here who aren't here normally, we're uh, actually doing a, a, a series on, on what the Bible says about being, being a church, church life series. And uh, I'm only going to recap very, very quickly what we did last time. And uh, what we saw is that according to the Bible, a church, and we are a church, has a threefold aim. All right. And we saw that within that threefold aim is also a list of priorities which must be observed. And that if those priorities get, you know, sort of turned inside out and one on top of the other, we're going to go wrong. We've got to keep to the threefold priority that the Word of God itself gives us. And you remember we saw that what it boils down to is that as a church, as a family of God in this place, we've been called to what the Bible calls a work of faith and labour of love. And we saw that scripture last time. And we saw that the three priorities were this. We have a work of faith and a labour of love, firstly and primarily to the Lord. Secondly, and only secondly, we have a work of faith and a labour of love to each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord in our family of the church. And then thirdly, not unimportantly, but nevertheless, lastly, we are responsible for a work of faith and a labour of love to the world. So there are the three priorities we have. To the Lord first, then to each other as the family of God, and then to the world, unbelievers who are as yet outside of the family of God.
and that each one of those priorities has two different aspects and the next six studies will be looking at each aspect of those three priorities and today we come to the first aspect of the first one we have a work of faith and a labor of love to the Lord himself and that the first aspect of that our main responsibility that we are called to in the Lord is that he wants us to show him that we love him the Lord is in a love relationship with us he is our father we are his children and above all else the Lord wants us to show him that we love him and so it's for that reason that tonight we're going to be turning our attention to the subject of worship and we're going to be seeing that above all else not instead of all else not to the exclusion of all else but above all else we are to be a worshipping church now you might be thinking okay right you know got to show the Lord we love him how does that connect with worship? Why does that make the subject tonight worship? Well, I'll tell you, all right. But first of all, we'll actually see the word in the Bible. Go first of all to John 4. John chapter 4. And let's actually see our mandate to be worshipping people. John 4 and verse 4, and uh, this is... Um, verse 24 and this is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman by the well and look what he says he says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth go to Philippians Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians chapter 3 and verse 3 and he says, we, talking about us as believers, he says, we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus. There you have it. Worshipping God. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. And this is lovely. This is a really lovely little verse. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And this is when the Magi, the wise men, eventually find Jesus as a little baby after he's been born. And look what it says. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child, that is Jesus. They saw Jesus with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. This is what it is all about. Now, the actual Greek word for worship that's used in all those scriptures that we've read is a fascinating word. And it will possibly surprise you what it actually means. Because the Greek word is proskuneo. That is the Greek word here translated worship. And it comes from two other words, pros, which means towards, and cuneo, which is the Greek verb which means to kiss. And the literal meaning of that word is to draw near to kiss. 
Now, can you immediately see why we're looking at worship in the context of the fact that the Lord wants us to show our love to him? The very word worship means to draw near to kiss. We're talking about a love relationship with Father and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. But there's something else that is amazing about that word as well, because cuneo, the verb to kiss, comes from another Greek word, kuon. And if you go to Matthew chapter 7, we'll actually see this word kuon, from which cuneo comes from, from which proskuneo, to worship, comes from. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Now I'm going to read it and just ask, spot cuon. See if you can guess which word it is. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now do you know what cuon is in there? It's dog. It's dog. The Greek verb to worship comes from the noun, is related to the noun for a dog. And when you put that together to draw near to kiss, I'll tell you the beautiful picture that the Greek gives us. It's this. It's a picture of a dog licking its master's hand. And when you see a dog licking its master's hand, you there have one of the, you know, the really great pictures of affection, of loyalty and obedience. I mean, it's legendary, isn't it? You know, the Englishman and his dog. Because you've got the loyalty, you've got the affection, and you've got the obedience of a dog to its master. Now, when we actually come to trying to define what worship actually is in the Bible, it's in actual fact the case that the Bible nowhere actually defines what worship is. There are some things in the Bible where, by going through the Bible systematically, you can tie them down and you can say, this is worship, or, or this is that, or this is that. Can you see? But you can't actually tie worship down and define it solidly in the Bible. And the reason for that is because it's the sum of various things that are put together. So that when you've got all those things together, then you're getting close to what the Bible is meaning by worship. But the two largest components by far, not the only ones, but this is what we're going to be concentrating on, is praise and thanksgiving. That worshipping, drawing near to God to kiss, showing that affection, that obedience and that loyalty in worship, boils down very largely to praise and thanksgiving. And so therefore, as we come together as a church, each time we come together, then we need to have praise and thanksgiving amongst us. Now, obviously, the way we work here, our Sundays is given over to this entirely, which is wonderful. Whereas tonight, the Tuesday, the emphasis is on teaching. But nevertheless, we still have time for worship, for praise and thanksgiving. And remember as well the principle of the church that we've seen. We've seen that as a church, we do together, once or twice a week, what we do at home individually for the rest of the week. 
So it shouldn't be the question that individually praise and thanksgiving is merely when we come together as a church. Praise and thanksgiving is what we ought to be doing individually daily, but remember what we do individually through the rest of the week, we do together as the, the extended family as the church when we come together, particularly on the Sundays. And so that's important to realise. Let's actually see this time between praise and thanksgiving in the Bible. Go to Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, we read, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now as we're going to see the singing of psalms and spiritual songs, that is praise, we're going to see that later. So here you've got spiritual songs representing praise and Paul says also with thankfulness in your hearts. Go to Ephesians, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 18 and Paul writes don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit now this is interesting we know how important it is to be filled with the Spirit we know how important it is to be baptized with the Spirit but when Paul gives a command and really what this is in the Greek in a literal translation it's not be filled with the Spirit he's not writing to a church comprised of Christians who weren't baptized in the Spirit because as we've seen many many times in the early church you didn't get away with being a Christian without being baptized in the Spirit very long at all did you they laid it on you right at the beginning which is where it's supposed to be. Literally, in the Greek tense, what Paul is saying here, and be being filled with the Spirit. The idea is keep going on being filled with the Holy Spirit the whole time. And look at the direct result of being filled with the Spirit that Paul talks of here. Many people homing on miracles and you know things like that, the gifts of the Spirit. That's fine, that's great, but look what Paul says. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. There we have praise, songs of praise. That is not a plug for a really awful program on BBC <laughs> television, by the way. And then he goes on in verse 20. He says, always and for everything giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. So there we have the tie-in, all the time between praise and thanksgiving. They go together, they're equal parts of worship, and yet they are not the same thing. So now we've got to ask, right, so what is the difference between praise and thanksgiving? Now, therefore, if you want to find the difference between two things, define them, each individually, and you'll have it. So let's do thanksgiving first. And what I'm going to show you that thanksgiving in the Bible is appreciation for what the Lord has done for us and what the Lord has given us. That is thanksgiving. It's very specific. It's appreciation for what the Lord has done for us and what the Lord has given us. 
Go to Romans and we'll just see some of the things that, uh, you know, the Bible specifically tells us to be thankful for. Romans 7. And verse 24. And Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there, Paul, thanksgiving for salvation from the penalty and from the power of sin. There's the first thing, thanksgiving for salvation. That's basic, isn't it? Absolutely basic. Go to Philippians. Chapter 1, and find verse 3. And Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, and for you all, making my prayer with joy, thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that word partnership, guess what it is? Koinonia. It's fellowship. So Paul here is thanking God for the fact that he's in fellowship. He's thanking the Lord for the family of the church. He's thankful for his brothers and sisters and the loving relationship he has with them. Go to 1 Corinthians 14. These are merely a little dippy into the Bible to see specific things that we're supposed to be thankful for. It will widen out in just a minute. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul says, thank you, Lord, for tongues. It's great. Thank you, Lord. Can you see what's coming over? Go back into 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30. I know that this one is very close to Robert's heart. He says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And he's talking about food, <laughs> is he? And basically what Paul is saying, he says, look, eat anything that's put in front of you, but give thanks for it, all right? So, salvation, be thankful for salvation. Be thankful for fellowship, particularly your Bible teacher. No, I didn't mean that. Be thankful for tongues. And be thankful for food. You see, so where, you know, I mean, it's, it's always easy to stay in the hyper-spiritual. When you've got salvation and fellowship and tongues kind of out on their own, that can be super-spiritual. But now we've seen food. Well, that's good and down to earth, isn't it? Okay, just go to Colossians. Colossians, chapter 3 and verse 15. And in fact... Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. So here, Paul's saying to them, not just that there are particular things to be thankful for, but he says, indeed, Christians should be thankful people. Can you see? There are some people that they're thankful for certain things. But there's all the difference in the world between someone who's thankful for certain things and a thankful person. Can you see that difference? Because someone can be thankful for particular things and then wrapped up with bitterness or, oh, it's not fair, you know, the rest of the time. Paul says we ought to be thankful people. It's part of our worship. Go to Philippians and let's open this wide out.
Philippians chapter 4, and in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance, that's your patience, your, you know, stickability. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here, Paul says, be thankful in everything. You can't get wider than that. He's not saying be thankful for some, some things, but sort of, you know, grouching your head off about others. He says, in everything, go to 1 Thessalonians. Just see this again. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16. You know sometimes the feeling when you're thinking, I wish I knew what God's will for me was. Do you, do you know that feeling? Yeah. Remember, the secret to guidance is that if you're doing what you know is God's will for you, as revealed in the Bible, then things where you need direct guidance will take care of yourself. So question, what is God's will for our lives? 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15. And Paul says, See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Isn't it interesting? Do you see the order there? To one another and to all. Always believers first, then unbelievers. But the main verse we want is, verse, is from verse 16. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now you can't get a more blatant statement of God's will for our life. It is being thankful in all things. Now we need to understand that this is different from being thankful for all things. The Christian teaching that goes around that you've got to praise God for everything and you've got to thank God for everything is... that's horrible. That's horrible. Are we going to thank God for the babies who were napalmed in the Vietnam War? Are we going to, to thank God, you know, for sort of like all the people being killed around the world? Of course we're not. We cannot, we will not, we must not thank or praise God for evil. And if evil befalls us, well, there's no way that we can thank God for it. But the point is, we've seen, it's not just being thankful for things, it's being thankful people. Therefore, even when evil befalls you, you are being thankful in it. Not for it. That's a ridiculous idea, to be thankful for evil. God hates evil. How can we be thankful for something God hates? No way. But we can be thankful in it because regardless at any time of what evil might be coming upon us, the point is, my goodness, we have so much to be thankful for as far as the Lord is concerned. So therefore, we're seeing that this thankfulness is all, is, is comprehensive, being thankful in all things. And that we should be living as God's people with thankful hearts. Thankful hearts for all God's blessings to us. And my goodness, regardless of how tough the time might be that we're going through, God has just poured out his blessings upon us. Just go to Romans, something very, very, very important here. 
Romans chapter 1 and find verse 21. In actual fact, in Romans, 20, uh, in Romans chapter 1, what Paul is doing, he's kind of showing the process whereby God's humanity fell away from him whereby man turned his back on the one true God and therefore ended up worshipping animals and, and things like that. And he's dealing with the point that man's sinful nature wants to be separate from God. There's an animosity in sinful men and women towards God. But in verse 21, look at this. He says, for although they knew God, everyone knows that God is there. They know that because they are there. If God isn't there, how could they be there? You know, nothing turns into something all on its own. Well, you know, scientists have got more faith than I have in that department. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. The beginning of rebellion against God be it here when Paul's dealing with like the history of mankind as it were, or be it us as individual Christians, the beginning of rebellion is always that we cease to give thanks. Because to cease to be thankful is the beginning of refusing to worship God. And to refuse to worship God, your Creator, is the beginning of claiming to be autonomous and independent from him even though you are merely the creature that he has created. So there you see the importance of thanksgiving part of worship. Now then, right, praise. We've defined thanksgiving. What is praise? Well, praise, again, it's appreciation. But it's appreciation not of what God has done for us, and not of what God has given us, but it's appreciation of who and what he is. Thanksgiving is response to what God has done, but praise is response purely for who he is. Praise is the response of our hearts to God simply because he is so wonderful and because he is so fantastic. Go to Psalm 145. Let's just get the general idea of this from the Bible. Psalm 145. <coughs> Verse 1. And this is a Psalm of David. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. So there you have King David praising God for his greatness. Can you see praise is not sort of based on what God does? Praise is based on God himself, the type of person that he is. Go back in Psalms to 21. Psalm 21, verse 13. Again, this is a Psalm of David. He says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Can you see? God is strength. 
God is power. And here we have praise for the strength and the power of God. And in the Bible, all the way through, all the way through, we, as the Lord's people, are exalted constantly to praise the Lord. Oh, that men would praise the Lord. Another psalm, David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be continually in my mouth. Why? Well, because the Lord is continuously powerful. He is continually wonderful. He is continually great. Can you see? Praise is based on the character and the very nature of God himself. Now, it's important to realise as well that with thanksgiving and praise, which together are parts of worship, they kind of make up the, the whole that we're calling worship, drawing near to kiss, that both of them are completely and totally independent of feelings. They are both <coughs> an act of the will. If your feelings happen to be stoking up the fire in your will's favour, then that is brilliant. But if your feelings are rather than stoking up the fire, chucking water on the fire, that doesn't matter. Because praise and thanksgiving are an act of the will. Think about it. Let's say you're going through the worst time imaginable, really, really, really hard, all right. Well, what about thanksgiving? Well, at the very least, God has given you salvation. Now, there's something you can't lose. So, at the very least, there is something to be being thankful for. I know that there are times when maybe it's a bit hard to be saying thank you Lord for my husband or thank you Lord for my wife or thank you Lord for my children. I appreciate that. There are times when sometimes the very things which are proving the problem are the hardest things to say thank, thank you for. Don't worry about that. At the very least you can be thanking God for your salvation. Are you getting the idea of it? And also in regards to praise, regardless of how you feel, God is always wonderful, he's always great, he's always mighty, he's always loving, he's always slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Therefore, regardless of what you feel, God is always worthy of praise. Therefore, it is right and proper that we give him the praise that is due to him. Feelings are not an important factor. Go to Psalm 50. Psalm 50 and find verse 14 and it says this offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving now there's thanksgiving go to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 and the writer says through him that is Jesus through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God so we've seen two commandments in the Bible regarding praise and thanksgiving and one is to make a sacrifice of thanksgiving 
and the other is to make a sacrifice of praise. Now, why does it say that? Well, I'll tell you. If you were blessed up to the eyeballs, you've just been healed, or you've, you've just met the lady of your life, and you know that suddenly your partner has appeared. Oh, the light in her eye. Careful, it might be the sun shining out through the hole in her head. But nevertheless, can you see? Maybe you've just had a fantastic rise at work or promotion or something like that. Okay. Well, in situations like that, <coughs> maybe you were baptised with the Spirit 30 seconds ago. Well, in times like that, it's going to be difficult not to be thanking and praising God. Can you see the point? That is right and that is proper and God loves it, but that is easy. That is easy. When you're blessed up to the eyeballs, then, I mean, praise and thanksgiving can bubble out of you, you know, like a stream. No problem. But you see, the thing is this. What about the times when you don't feel blessed up to the eyeballs? What about the times, and there are many in the Christian life, when God is testing you and everything is going wrong? What about the times when far from your prayers being answered the day before you got around to praying them, what happens when you haven't seemingly had a prayer answer for a couple of years? Goodness, what then? What then? Well, the point is this. You may well be feeling pretty awful subjectively. And the reason that the Bible commands us to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving and a sacrifice of praise is because we've got to go against our feelings in that time and we've got to do it anyway. Because praise and thanksgiving are nothing whatsoever to do with what we are feeling subjectively. Praise and thanksgiving are to do with responding to what God has done, what God has given us, and who God is. And that is absolutely constant. Therefore, it is right that we praise the Lord. It is right that we give thanks to him. And this is important to realize, because Satan's very, very clever. <clears throat> There'll be times when maybe, you know, you might be having a time of prayer on your own, or it might be coming along here. All right? And you might be feeling a bit down. You think, now, come on, I've got to, you know, it's right that I praise the Lord, that I give thanks. You know, I'm going to dance, I'm going to jump up and down, I'm going to clap because it's right. And that's marvellous. That is you responding to what the Holy Spirit wants. And you're just about to do it, but you see you're vulnerable because you're feeling down. We're all vulnerable when we're feeling down. Okay? And so Satan jumps in and he says, no, no, that would be hypocrisy. And you think, oh, yeah, it would be hypocrisy. And so you don't do it. Is he? It is not hypocrisy to praise the Lord if you don't feel like it. It is not hypocrisy to give thanks to God when you don't feel like it. That is making a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which, if anything, is even more precious to him. Obviously, if you're praising the Lord and thanking the Lord and you've got unconfessed sin in your life, that's hypocrisy. But it's not hypocrisy to be praising and thanking God in worship just because you don't feel like it. The important thing is to get up there and to do it. And that leads us on to where we're going to go next tonight. <clears throat> because we're going to quite specifically be talking about using our bodies in worship as a church. Isn't that an odd thought? we're actually going to be looking at the teaching of the Bible about what you're supposed to do with your body when you come together, as a, when we come together as a church to worship. And there's an important connection here. 
We've already seen that our attitude, mentally speaking, should be one of thankfulness and praise when we come together. So whether it's tonight or Sunday or whatever, when we come together, our attitude, our outlook should be that we should be thankful people and we should come to give God the praise due to him. But what is very interesting is this. It's the very word attitude itself. And I'm going to give you the two definitions of attitude in the Oxford Dictionary. Because the word attitude has two quite different meanings, but they are connected. Number one, attitude is a settled mode of thinking. Now that is praise and thankfulness, isn't it? We come with a settled mode of thinking. We've decided it already. It's an act of the will. God is good. God is wonderful, we're going to praise him, we're going to thank him. So there's the attitude, a settled mode of thinking, the act of the will. But do you know what the second definition of attitude is in the Oxford Dictionary? It's the posture of a body. Did you realise that? The posture of a body. An attitude is a mental thing, but it is also a physical thing. These, these guys who go out grouse shooting, I mean, it's a ghastly thing to do, but they've got the old pointer dogs. And, you know, the dogs they point, don't they? That is to strike an attitude, a bodily attitude. So we see, see the two aspects of the meaning of the word attitude. And what we're going to be looking at tonight is that what the Bible teaches about body language. You've heard the phrase body language, haven't you? I hope these laughs and giggles going on in the background are sanctified, I, I really do. <coughs> you, you've heard all the talk about body language, haven't you? Well, the truth is that the Bible beat Desmond Morris to it by a few thousand years, because the Bible is full of body language. And as we go through it, we'll see the connection. Go first of all to Psalm 28. And what we're turning to now, remember, is what the Bible teaches about what you're supposed to be doing with your body when you worship. We're taking it for granted that mental outlook and attitude is right, that we're right with God, and we're asking what do we do with our bodies in worship. Well, Psalm 28, and find verse 2. We read this. Hear the voice of my supplication, because prayer is another aspect of worship. We're not concentrating on that, but prayer is. Hear the voice of my supplication as I cry to you for help, as I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Go to Psalm 63. Verse 4. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. Psalm 134. <laughs> <laughs> Psalm, yes, if you get lost, don't worry, I'll be reading all the verses out anyway. Psalm 134, first two verses. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. Now here, we have instructions from the Bible 
that when we come together for worship, we ought to put our hands in the air. Now, why ought we put our hands in the air? I'm not talking about all the time, <laughs> incidentally, but there are times in worship when we ought to have our hands in the air. Now, why is that? Well, I'll tell you. Because to raise your hands in the air is universal body language. And it means quite simply this. I give up. You're Westerns. When you knew that the bloke standing in front of you with his finger twitching nervously at his holster can draw faster than you, you put your hands up in the air, both hands. And it means I surrender. It means I give in. It means crumbs. If I get into a fight with him, I'm the one who's going to come off worst. So hands in the air means, no, I surrender, I submit. You have the supremacy over me. Now then, can you see? Can you see what's happening here? To put your hands in the air is a bodily way of surrendering to the Lord. It's a way of coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I surrender. It's saying, Lord, you are in charge, not me. If I go against you, Lord, there's going to be a fight. And I know that it's not me who's going to win it. Galatians 5, Paul says that the spirit wrestles against the flesh and the flesh wrestles against the spirit. Don't get into more wrestling matches with God than you can avoid. The reason being, I've been in many and I haven't won one yet. Therefore, the sensible thing to do is, as soon as you see it coming, surrender. I mean, the Lord knows psychology. Of course he does. He created the human mind. In fact, I'd argue the Lord is the only one who possibly can understand psychology properly, which is why it's such a potentially dodgy and dangerous subject. But you see, the thing is that what we have in the Bible is literally the idea that we can use our bodies to change ourselves on the inside. Now, isn't that a strange thought? But then that is what body language is. And in fact, what we've got here is body language working in reverse. Because if body language is, is the body letting out what's going on inside of you, what we're going to see is that the teaching in the Bible about worship is the other way round. It's using body language to put something inside of you that wasn't there before you start using the body language. Do you see that? We cannot, and God understands this, we cannot get immediate control over our emotions, over our embarrassments, over the inhibitions that we have. God understands that. We cannot, just like that, get a hold of them and control them because they're too deep set. But the point is this, you can immediately start to get a little bit con of control over your bodies. Can you see? And that if you can't do anything to change the inhibitions on the inside and the feelings on the inside, then use your body in obedience to the Word of God and then open your inside to receive what God wants to give you from the outside and you'll find that by using body language you're actually changing what's going on inside of you. Again, I've got to come back to the fact that it is a question of the will. 
it's an act of the will. Some friends of mine used to go to um, a Church of England church, way out in the sticks this was. And uh, before they left, there were some of them there who had been baptised with the Spirit. And, uh, you know, they, they'd started, you know, raising their, their hands during the worship. And there were some people who got a little bit upset. And after one of the services, there was an old boy in this Anglican church. He was a genuine believer, but he was, he was Anglican. Do you know? I mean, he was a real, you know, true blue Anglican. And yet, as you're going to see, he had an openness to God. Because he came up, he, you know, he's a bit gruff, a bit put out. And he said, what are you, you know, what, why are you raising your hands in the air? This is offensive, this is fanaticism, you see. And he said, you, you show me in the Bible where it says that. <laughs> so they got the Bible out and they showed it him all over the place. And the next Sunday they went back and there he was, as stiff and starchy as ever, with his hands in the air. <laughs> because the Bible said so. Now there is a dyed-in-the-wall Anglican who can change. And let's forget Anglicans, we are, can all be dyed in the wool in certain ways. It's this obedience to the Bible with body language in worship which is going to change us. And let's face it, the Bible is our instruction manual. It is not an ideas man. God hasn't given us the Bible to kind of throw up a few ideas for us to toss around and see which ones we fancy. <laughs> That's called a Baptist minister, an ideas man. No, the Bible is an instruction manual, and it gives us specific instructions, including worship. And we've seen one. When you come together for worship, raise your hands in the air. You'll possibly excuse me if I don't, but I don't know how to play the guitar with my hands raised in the air. But are you getting the point? The question is, that's what the Bible says. Are we going to be willing to obey it? Now, go to Psalm 47. Psalm 47. We'll see another one. 47 and verse 1. <clears throat> and here it says, Clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Here we have clapping and shouting. My, clapping and shouting? When you worship God? No, can't be. Whoa. Let me give you an impression of a Christian at a football match. Hey, come on, lads. Come on, Jimmy. Yay! You see, all excited, all excited. Let me give you an impression of that same Christian when he is worshipping. Now thank we all our God. Isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? Isn't it weird? Here we're seeing that part of worship is clapping and shouting, all right? And of course, being Brits, we're all going, no, no, it can't be, it can't be. But only in regards to worship. Well, it's weird, isn't it? Isn't it strange the number of Christians who are socially free I mean, you know, have a party. I mean, I'm talking about a nice party, not an out-of-order party. And they'll be up boogieing and, you know, especially if you get some of the old Chuck Mangione tapes on. And, you know, they're up there and they're, they're, they're you know, and they're laughing and every They're socially free. And that is good. And that is good. But in worship, quiet as a mouse. 
sit there, hardly a flicker of a muscle anywhere. Now, can you see, this means that there really is something wrong with the inhibitions we've got, i.e. our inhibitions are not normative. God actually wants to be working on them. Let's, let's kind of, you know, clapping and shouting. Let's look at each, each one of those. First of all, clapping. Clap your hands, all you people. Clapping. What is clapping body language for? Clapping is appreciation of talent. You've been to a concert, or you've been to a show, been to the theatre, and at the end of it you clap. And what are you saying? That was great. Your talent really gave me pleasure. That was wonderful. I respond to the talent that you have demonstrated to me, all right? So clapping is an outward show, body language, for appreciation of talent. Now, let me ask you, do you not think that the Lord is the most talented person around? I think he is. I think he is. I mean, can you think of anyone who deserves applause more than God does. It's, it's amazing. I mean, there are many humans who do things, and yes, what they do is worthy of applause. It's fantastic. But where were they when God laid the foundations of the earth? That's clever. Could you imagine turning nothing? I mean, I put this to you. There's nothing but you. You are all there is, and there is nothing except you. Now, using only your own talents, because you are the only thing that is there, using your own talents only, you then proceed to turn the nothing into absolutely everything there is. That's clever. Could you do it? And yet, my goodness, the twerps that people applaud on the telly. I mean, can you see that it's appreciation of just the talent of the Lord? He is the master creator. He is the master artist. Art is merely trying to reflect what is already there. How much greater an artist is the person who put the everything there in the first place and which artists are merely trying to reflect? That is talent. That's worth a clap. Alright, clap your hands, shout to God. Shouting. Oh, I remember the first time that I sat next to a shouter in church, in a church, in, not in church, in a building, sorry Lord, in a yeah. building where a church, but that place, they kept calling it the church, it rubs off. The first time when I sat next to, I mean, I'd heard shouters before in various places, but on one occasion I ended up sitting next to one, and suddenly shouting became very relevant to me, because I was sitting next to him, and I had to think about, I'd never had to respond to shouting before in church, and, uh, you know, so I had to respond to this. And do you know what my, you know, my response was? I was as embarrassed as anything. If I'd have had a shovel, <laughs> I'd have dug a hole. I really was. And that was my response to it. I thought he was a fanatic. I was embarrassed. I thought he's making me stumble. I come along, try and worship God, and what do I get? People who make it hard for me. <laughs> you see. Anyway, it was some time later... <laughs> <laughs> it was sometimes later, because I've told you this, that the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, 
and it means literally to think again. Well, you can imagine, it wasn't long before I was forced, this time by the Holy Spirit, to think again about it. And the Lord convicted me. I was wrong. Not him. I had to repent of thinking there was something wrong with him. There was I, in sin, busy condemning him, who was free, precisely where I was in bondage. And I had to repent of that, you see. Now, that repentance is an act of the will. It doesn't yet mean to this day that I am free yet to bellow in church, without, to bellow in the fellowship, without inhibitions. One day I will be, I pray. But the point is this. I didn't feel any differently, but I said, Lord, I'm wrong. I repented. It was an act of the will. And when we do that, when we realise that we're sitting there, all inhibited, as British as you can get. Mm. And I, I have found in, in, in my study of the scriptures that, that one of the most important attributes of God, and it's one of the ones that if God didn't have this attribute, we'd all be finished. And it's this, he's not a Brit. <laughs> he's not British. Can you imagine if God was British? I mean, we wouldn't know what he thought or felt about anything. He'd never tell anyone, would he? You see, and we've got to realise that here we are with all our British reserve and inhibitions, sheer emotional bondage, incidentally, trying to make out it's spiritual, trying to make out it's cultural or something like that. Now, repentance is we'll say, Lord, no, I acknowledge before you now that it's my inhibitions that are wrong. Lord, I repent of my inhibitions. The Lord understands that doesn't mean that the next time you go at the meeting you'll be sort of dancing all over the place, but it's the beginning. Can you see? That slow change may be over years, but the beginning is the repentance. We've got to stop kidding ourselves about the inhibitions we've got in worship. They are wrong, all right? It's as simple as that. Let's put the two together then, clapping and shouting. Really, what does that boil down to? It's cheering. This, when you put clapping and shouting together, you've got cheering. And cheering is body language. It's the kind of the outward sign of excitement and appreciation. Excitement and appreciation. And I still remember when I went to see Aliens, the first time I ever cheered in the cinema. I was so excited. And I, at one point, you know, she, she, she's just rescued the little girl from the mama alien, you see, and, and the whole planet's breaking up and she's on this massive balcony and this, it's falling down and the shuttlecraft hasn't come to save her. And it's just, and then suddenly the shuttlecraft appears, just it comes up over the balcony. And I sat there and I went, hey, like that. Yeah, well, Belinda hid under the chair. But can you see, there's nothing wrong with that. But my goodness, if we can get excited over a film, which is good, can you see how much more excited ought we be about God himself and about what he is doing. Right, so there we've got clapping and shouting, cheering the Lord. The Bible says do it. Go to Psalm 149 now, for we have not yet finished. And there's more. Psalm 149, verse 3. Let them praise his name with dancing. Go to Psalm 150, the next one, verse 4. Praise him 
with timbrel and dance. Now, we've got dancing. We've had lifting your hands up, all right? You know, we've had clapping and we've had shouting. Now, we've got dancing of all things. Now, the Hebrew word for dance is more cold, right? And it comes from the verb keel, which means to twist or to twirl. That's what it means. I'll read them again. Praise his name with twisting and twirling. Praise him with the timbrel and with twisting and twirling. So th this is a literal translation into the Hebrew. This is what it should say. My goodness, go to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. 2 Samuel, chapter 6 and verse 12. Now then, this is in actual fact what happened when the ark that the covenant was in was returned to Jerusalem, having been in captivity. Wonderful occasion. Now then, it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Abedadom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obededom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Look at that. King David dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Isn't that incredible? And here we've got amazing rejoicing. The ark of the Lord has been returned to God's people for the first time for years and years and years. One of the most significant events to have happened to Israel. All right? And now we find them, King David, dancing. And why? Well, I'll tell you. Because dancing is body language. It's a sign of happiness. It's an outward sign of jollity. Dancing is an outward sign of celebration. I remember probably about four or five years ago, sitting here one Tuesday night, and... Uh, I remember sitting over there, It was uh, I was only coming here once a month then, and uh, I didn't have to play the guitar or anything, and I remember sitting over there, and um, I kind of, I asked the Lord a question, now, this is one of those very, very few occasions in my life when I've asked God a question and I can actually quote you what he said to me, very, very rare, very rare indeed, this wasn't through just a kind of a conviction or a feeling, I heard what he said and I can quote you, and the question I asked was this, Robert was dancing up and down in front of me with his maracas, alright, and I was sitting there all all, all rather inhibited, as well, I, I was a lot more inhibited then than I am now, you know, the Lord's working on it, which is good. And I remember saying to the Lord, what is worship? It wasn't even a conscious question, I kind of half just realised, I said, Lord, what is worship? And immediately he said to me, and I'm quoting you what he said, he said, and I quote, it's a party. I thought, yeah. <laughs> Of course it's a party. That's exactly what it is when the family of God comes together. Can you see another reason why the Bible teaches that the central point of our worship together is our love feast? 
Because what do you have at a party? You have dancing, you have food. Because a party is a celebration and there's happiness. Now, why is a party a celebration? Well, it depends what the party is there to celebrate. But I'll tell you what worship is celebrating. It's a party to celebrate Jesus. And Jesus is the guest of honour at that party. That is what worship is. A party to celebrate how wonderful Jesus is and to celebrate the fact that he is here with us. That is what worship is. Have you noticed over the years, and you might have done this yourself, the way that Christians go along to church, inverted commas, <laughs> looking like they're going to the dentist. And then an hour later they come out looking as if they've been. <laughs> now, is it surprising? With the boring, drab, luck kind of worship that this country has tended to churn out in the name of the Lord, heaven help us. Worship is a party. Alright. Now then, I want to reinforce the fact that this is what the Bible teaches and not just me. Alright, because we don't want just silly old Beresford, do we? And I want to really clinch from the Bible the fact that this isn't just silly old Beresford. This really is what the Bible says. And we're gonna actually see that in the Bible there are 11 different Greek and Hebrew words that gets translated praise. So every time you're reading your Bible, every time you come across the one word praise, that could be any one of 11 Greek or Hebrew words. See how boring the English language is? Awful, isn't it? You know, we have one word praise. All right, you know, well, the Greeks had three and the Hebrews had eight. And that what I'm going to do is to go through them, all right, and to tell you what they mean. But remember, each one of these words is translated in the Bible by the word praise. So all these are elements of praise. Let's do the Hebrew ones first in the Old Testament. Eight different Hebrew words in the Old Testament, but they all just get translated praise in our Bible. The first one is this, Barak, and it means to kneel. And that is a part of worship. I believe and I hope that soon we will experience times in our worship when the floor is going to be the only place that it's proper to be at that moment because the Lord is going to manifest himself in such holiness. And believe me, when the Lord manifests his holiness, it's on your knees or on your face. That is not the time to be jumping up and down on the chair singing a snappy chorus. There is a time for that. But can you see to kneel in absolute reverence? That is part of worship. Second word, heal law. And that means to celebrate. It literally means be merry. That's what this Hebrew word means. Be merry. The third one, halal. And that means to make a big show. It means to make a show of something, really go to town. 
Now, from those two, to celebrate, be merry, and make a show of it, you get the thing about the party. Literally what the Hebrew words mean. Number four, zulmor. It means to twang. Twang. That's what it means. And it's the word used to describe what a stringed instrument does. To twang. All right. And they're referring to the use of instruments in worship. Number five, your door. That means to worship with extended hands. There we have putting your hands in the air again. Can you see all these different aspects of worship? But, you know, our boring old English Bibles just don't bring it out, do they? Sure back. Again, translated praise. The Hebrew word means to address in a loud voice. Now, what do you do when you address someone in a loud voice? You shout at them. We've got shouting. Here it is. Number seven, Tihi Law. And that simply means a laudation or a hymn. It means sung praise. So there is singing, spiritual songs. All right, praise. And then Todor, another one, to means extending the hands again. All right. So can you see all that, you know, the, the variety of ways of worship? Three in the Greek, not, not quite so, you know, sort of many facets of the diamond in the Greek, but you've got anio, which means to speak praise. You've got humnio, which means to sing praise. And humnio is where we get a hymn from. It's where the word hymn comes from. It means a spiritual song. And then thirdly, you get salo, which means to twang. So there, there we've got twanging again. All right. And that is the Greek word, translated praise, but it means literally the twanging of a stringed instrument. And also, in the Greek, that is also the word that translates the word psalm. And do you know what a psalm is? The word psalm literally means a twanging. That is what a psalm is. It's twanging to the Lord. Because you're getting your instruments out and you're worshipping the Lord with all your might. And it's exactly the same for the Hebrew word for psalm as well. The Hebrew word for psalm also means the twanging as in a stringed instrument. So my goodness, kneel, celebrate, be merry, make a show of it, twang, get your hands in the air, shout, sing. All these are different aspects in the original languages of what praise actually is. Now let me emphasize again, the Bible does not lead us to believe that we're supposed to be doing the whole lot all the time. That would be difficult. That would be difficult. So I mean, don't feel obliged that you're only being honoring to the Lord if within the first five minutes of worship you've sort of managed to learn how to twang with your arms in the air kneeling and twirling at the same time. Don't, don't, don't feel guilty if you can't do that. It'll take a while before you, you get the hang of it. Now, obviously, it's not doing all of them all the time, but all these are proper elements of worship. Now, can you see, given that this is what the Bible says about praise, my goodness, can you see we've got some changing to do? My goodness, we've got some changing to do. And we've got to understand that where we are different from how the Bible teaches that we should be, it's always our fault. It is never God's fault. It is always our fault. Now, that means quite simply what's preventing us, I mean, are sort of inhibitions, things like that. We've got to understand that the root of inhibitions are sin. Now, I mean, obviously, there are inhibitions which are not sinful. But you know the ones I'm talking about. The inhibitions where the Bible says, shout unto God. 
and we're too embarrassed to shout unto God. That is an example of an inhibition, and the root of that is sin. And what is the root of inhibitions like that? I will tell you, it is pride. It is pride because the root of embarrassment is, oh, oh, what will people think of me? What will I look like? Here's he. Now that is sin. Because what other people think of us doesn't matter. It's what Jesus thinks that counts. And remember, we're looking at our number one priority as a church, showing the Lord we love him. And this is how he wants us to do it, in worship. To be free, to let it out, our love, our praise, our thanksgiving for him. I can remember um, when I was at Bible college, um, which is not a year I like to remember, I've only ever thought of one good reason to have the healing of the memories, which is totally unscriptural, and it's to forget Bible college. <laughs> it's the only good reason that I can think of for the healing of the memories. But nevertheless, it's totally unscriptural, don't touch it with a barge pole. No, but I can remember sitting there once, and um, at the time, do you remember that chorus? If I were a butterfly, I'd thank you, Lord, for giving me. Do you, do you remember that one? Right, okay, well, I do. And it was all the rage when I was at college. And I remember one Saturday evening, theoretically Saturday evenings were time off. The reality of it is that every Saturday <laughs> there was a, a preacher there. And it was kind of an unspoken rule that it was voluntarily mandatory that you had to be there. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I got a bit fed up with this, you know. But anyway, I remember sitting there and for about the hundredth time that term, we sang If I Were a Butterfly, with all the actions. And I mean, I can still, I mean, well, I couldn't actually see it for the simple reason that one can't actually see yourself in this manner. But I can envisage the look that must have been on my face as I sat there, absolutely disgusted <coughs> at having to sing this wretched chorus <coughs> for the hundredth time that term. Makes you know this phrase. You're, you know you'll never be able to turn around and look yourself in the face again. I mean it's actually impossible. But I mean I, I can envisage what my face must have looked like. And I remember sitting there, and I was thinking, I didn't come to college to act like a child. I didn't come here to be mature. I came here to try and learn. And anyway, there's a good film on. And I was sitting there like that determined not to, you know, start acting like an absolute idiot, all right? And that was my attitude. Well, do you know what happened when the Holy Spirit got his hands on me for that? I had to repent of it, and for this reason. There I was refusing to act as a child to the Lord. When the Word of God says, unless you become as little children, now, we're not talking about childishness, we're talking about childlikeness. And you see, there was me being snotty about what I thought this ridiculous chorus, if I were a butterfly, if I were an elephant. <laughs> but you see, the thing is, there is a profound truth in that chorus. It is not a stupid little chorus at all, because each verse ends with, I just thank you, Father for making me, me. That is as profound a biblical truth as you can get. 
there would be many, many Christians who, if they could thank the Lord that he made them them, they'd come into victory that they're not yet knowing. Because all the time they're going around with an inferiority complex thinking, well, Lord, why didn't you make me him? Why didn't you make me her? Why haven't I got that ministry? Why can't I teach the Bible like them? Why can't I evangelise like him? There is an incredibly profound and important truth in that chorus. And there I was, being snotty about it, missing the whole point. Now, can you see... We need this willingness to actually be free to become as little children. Let me show you an example in the Bible of someone who had exactly the same attitude as I did that night when they sang, If I Were a Butterfly. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. In fact, you should have your Bibles open there already. And we're actually going to look at David's wife. Michal. And first of all, in verse 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, sorry, verse 16 first. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Go to verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honoured himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of the servants' maids as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will yet make myself more contemptible than this. He says, if God wants me to become even more childlike, then I will. And he said, by them, by the maids, I shall be held in honour. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. She became barren for that. And can you see, when we look at people who are free in worship, I'm not talking about exhibitionists. There is exhibitionism. I am not talking about that. I'm talking about assuming that this is coming from, that you're doing it for Jesus. Not so that other people think, oh, isn't he liberated in the spirit? Oh, no, that's exhibitionism. But the point is, the next time that you look at someone who's free in the spirit of <coughs> worship and despise them in your heart, so I wish you'd sit down and shut up, this is embarrassing. That's what you're doing. You're despising them in your heart. Then remember that like Michal, the wife of Saul, you have let barrenness into your heart spiritually. Because it's sheer pride. Remember, if I were a butterfly, I was being snotty. And I know I was being snotty. I was being as proud as anything. What's the point in denying it? It's pride. And that what we've got to do is, we've got to come together, and we've got to praise the Lord because the Bible says so. We've got to use our body to get unbound. You know, 
We've got to repent of all the things that hold us back. And we've got to consciously start using our bodies. Now, obviously, I, it's not going to be all at once. It's step by step. I mean, it's like, for instance, I mean, sort of say that tonight, maybe you've even wanted to, but you haven't been able to lift your hands in the air. All right. Now, the Bible says so. So tonight, you know that it's right that you do that. All right. And you think, right, yes, the Lord wants me to do that. Now, what I suggest is that next week, when you come back, all right, just, just, just sort of get, get one hand up, about three inches above your waist. M make sure no one's looking. Make sure no one's looking. We don't want to embarrass you, but just a little bit. And then, and then after a few weeks, maybe they're, they're up here, up to your chest, until eventually they'll be in the air. And can you see, you're going to be unlocking your emotions in worship, but you'll be doing it by being obedient with your body. All right. So then, step by step, bit by bit, make your little moves, make sure no one's looking. We don't want you to be embarrassed. Fit it in, the Lord can see it, the Lord can see it, all right? You know, a little clap of the hands behind your back, it's fine. If that's the best you can do, the Lord will honour it, because it will lead on, bit by bit, progressively, and you'll become free. Now, there's one other thing that I want to say there. I am encouraging, all I can, freedom in worship, because the Bible does. And that is absolutely right and that is absolutely proper, that we encourage people to be free in worship. But let me say as well that you will not find that there is any coercion here to make you do it. Because coercion is wrong. You know what it is, you go to these places, alright, and there's usually someone up the front. And they're, quite, they're directing the whole time. Let's... Let's stand up for this one. Let's, let's, let's sit down and let's, let's really sing this from the heart. You know, as if you were going to sing it from somewhere else. Now, all the time, they're giving you instructions. And then sort of maybe they'll say, let's stand up for this one. So you stand up, all right? And then you'll see that, okay, all right, fine, you know. And you've got no choice. It's peer pressure. You've got no choice. And then the next thing, come on, let's see you clapping. <laughs> and can you see, this is manipulation. This is coercion. Let me tell you, that is absolutely wrong. Because it's not honouring people's free will. And you see, it is totally counterproductive. The Lord doesn't want you up clapping him. Because if you don't, you'll look a burke, because the bloke up the front has got everyone else doing it. The Lord wants you clapping because you want to do it. And that is why it's so wrong when leaders whip people up into worship and that we don't allow that here it's not going to be allowed here the freedom that we come to is going to be the freedom of the spirit and we're not going to bully each other we're going to leave each other alone we're going to encourage each other but we're not going to let one person decide how fast another person ought to be developing can you see if you do that if you start to use coercion you will in actual fact compound the very inhibitions that jesus wants to set us free from so all this manipulation stuff always being told what to do in worship that isn't allowed here that isn't of the lord all manipulation is wrong the lord simply doesn't need it and i'll tell you why why would robert and i need to manipulate anyone here the Holy Spirit's here. 
Isn't that enough? Isn't manipulation the kind of the ultimate statement of your sheer unbelief? We're doing what the Bible says, and we're going to let the Lord do it. That is the key. Right, just a couple of other things before we wind up. Go to 1 Corinthians 14, and these are, of course, in regards to worship. 1 Corinthians 14, and find verse 26. And these are Paul's instructions in Corinthians in regards to how a church ought to, you know, be meeting when the people come together, how we ought to conduct ourselves. He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now then, Paul's talking about how you come together for worship, and he says, each one has. Understand that there should be no leadership from the front in worship. There should be no set service. Why shouldn't there be? What I'll tell you. Because the Holy Spirit wants to be the leader. He doesn't want the elders to be the leaders. He doesn't want the most gifted person musically to be the leader. The Holy Spirit wants to lead. And if you start having one person directing the worship from the front all the time, or if you have set services, well, that is the opposite of being led by the Holy Spirit. So again, that is why here, when we come together, when there's worship, I mean, obviously, there, there's a lead taken by the guitar, if only because, I mean, the guitarist has got to strike the chord up. But obviously, everyone knows they're free to start a chorus. I mean, we've got a way to go on that, because, I mean, the chances are I won't know the chords to it. But the point is, we're heading towards that goal. Anyone is free to move in the Spirit in our worship. You see, so no set services and not led worship up the front all the time. The Holy Spirit wants to lead our worship. So then, let's show God we love him. This is what worship is all about. This is our number one priority. This is our work of faith and our labour of love towards the Lord as a church. It's to be a worshipping church to show him that we love him. Remember, proscunio, worship, what does it mean? It means to draw near to kiss. The verb cuneo, to kiss, is related to the noun cuon, a dog. The picture of the affection and loyalty and obedience of a dog licking its master's hand. Now, can you see how wonderful it is? If we come to the Lord like that as a church, if that number one priority is imprinted on our hearts, our worship, then that is laying the foundation for the Lord to have his way in the rest of the things. Next time, we turn to the second aspect of our first priority, and we'll be seeing that we must be a worshipping church, but that we must also be an obedient and a mature church. And we turn to that next time.